0: Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment and everything in between. Each episode we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast, enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my good friend and animal welfare researcher, Ezekiel Gating. Ezekiel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's uh, great to uh, chat with you again
1: lovely to be here yeah thanks thanks for inviting me
0: yeah absolutely so Ezekiel has done a ton of of really interesting uh, research he has a ton of really great insights as far as a uh, you know animal welfare goes and um, a a great thought process and he's a a great guy so I thought I'd have him on Um, so I hope uh, you know you enjoy a a little talk around uh, a wide range of animal welfare specific topics um To start off, do you want to sort of give people an idea of your background and how you sort of got involved in this whole space of uh, animal welfare?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks. Um, So basically, I'm doing my master's in psychology. I'm in the area called comparative cognition. So it's really about how animals think, how they represent things around them, um, things in the environment. Um, But my work is a bit more on the applied side of that so more on the animal applied animal behavior science and uh, welfare that sort of stuff Um, my undergrad is also in psychology um, but a wee bit of um, spattering of like biology courses and some maths Um, so primate behavioral ecology and genetics things like these Um, i took that Um, but the thing that really got me into animal welfare was my animal behavior class which had me do Several observations. Write an ethogram, so um, I'm sure the listeners are familiar with about uh, or yeah with with an ethogram. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for those of you who don't know, an ethogram is the basic sort of um, operationalization of behaviors. How you can count and measure behaviors in a systematic way. Um, so I, had, um, I was asked to do that for Gorillas and orangs, and um, I just absolutely love the experience. Um, so coming from psychology, you can do so many different things. But um, at that moment, when I was doing it, I just felt like this is exactly what I want to do. I just want to watch animals. Um, of course, like, you know, um, I was looking specifically at play behaviors at the time, um, more on the interest of what is it correlated to? Is it like a foraging tactic? Is it a way for them to understand um, different things in their environment? Um, But we did find that it had implications when it comes to welfare. So I looked at the relationship of foraging activities and play and it was correlated. So if you think about it, the more an animal um, is fed, the more likely it is for the animal to play. Um, And I found that in uh, gorillas um, at the time So um, what happened was after that course, which I really just thoroughly enjoyed, um, I got contacted by my supervisor, Dr. Suzanne McDonald, um, maybe like a few months later and I was asked, hey, so the zoo's actually, the Toronto Zoo specifically is um, actually doing um, or is actually hiring for summer students. Uh, So students who uh, would like to basically be an intern and help them do behavioral observations. And because you've already done this, I think you're actually good for um, uh, the job. So with her recommendation, I gave it a try and I got to work with hyenas um, or on hyenas on tigers and a little bit with uh, trying to remember that species um, dwarf crocodile. So African dwarf crocodiles Um, and the zoo was interested in, introducing to hyenas at the time, um, and they wanted to see how the hyenas would react. So they needed someone to actually watch and count the behaviors that would be um, indicative of social interaction, things like these. Um, And then it just went on from there. Um, So I also did my honors thesis on um, uh, some of the animals at the Toronto Zoo. Um, And because my supervisor um, also works um, or collaborates um, in close contact with uh, the Toronto Zoo, um, I got to do that bit of research. So my honours was on um, polar bears and, and how they would react to construction noise. Um, so the zoo briefly had this, um, the Toronto Zoo briefly had this display um, this light display, and for that they had to dig channels through um, parts where people would normally be, uh, but would also be very close to the polar bear. So I got to watch that, um, and it just went on from there. It just went on from there.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting. So uh, yeah, I'm sure most people have heard of ethograms, and 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 keepers might have uh, done them before in in training, or they might be doing them currently, or helping people make them. Um, when you're looking at an animal with an ethogram and you're doing sort of some of this research, like at what point do you feel like you have enough or is it always like you can always get more and more and more and more and more data, but you sort of just get to the point where you just don't have any more time. Like what, what is that sort of process look like for you?
1: So a hand sort of like, or off the top of my head, um, it'd usually be like 60 hours of observation. Um, if it's practical, sometimes the projects would be pretty short um, and you have to do your best um, with what you've got, of course. Um, but theoretically you could do um, you could do as much. you could collect as much data as you can. Um, but then also that would depend on your study design. Like yeah. usually it'd be uh, pre post or pre during and post. Um, And, of course, you'd like to keep those equal um, because it wouldn't necessarily be good to have, like, too much of the post. Um, And then you try to reverse that somehow if you'd like to um, change the, um, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word for it? The treatment that Mm. you um, are putting in. So, say, for example, you are um, hovering one side of the exhibit, because you wanted to make you wanted to see if the um, if the animals would respond to um, that, they would respond to not seeing the visitors, for example. Um, Then what you'd like to do is you would like to collect a baseline, um, which ideally would be around um, 60 hours um, or so, and then uh, collect the during so you you put the cover on and then you reverse that you take the cover off as well um and that would be like 60 60 60 that's the ideal but that doesn't happen very often yeah um and like i say you have to do the best with what you've got um but 60 is pretty much the standard
0: right yeah because i just think about that because you know from a like a keeper standpoint like one of the things is you know um, <clears throat> that typically like falls from the wayside is actually just like sitting and, and observing the animals that you work with, whether or not it's, uh, uh, you know, enrichment interactions or just, you know, their day to day sort of life. And it's one of the things that I talk about all the time is, is sort of building these baselines and, uh, with your sort of observations and and knowledge around what the animal is doing in the d- in the day and and sixty hours is is to straight watching your animal even if you're there every single day as a as a keeper like how much time are you actually spending just watching the animal and not influencing that behavior you know like when you're feeding it and when you're doing all these things like that really doesn't necessarily count because it's you know you you are directly in in, in impacting that behavior so it's. Uh, you know, just outside of that time, like how much time are you actually spending? That's why we need, uh, you know, people like you that, uh, you know, specialize in these ethograms and, and this observation and this interpretation of the behavior. So, yeah, it's it's interesting.
1: I think it's very, it's it's cool that you also mentioned that because there is there's a significant commitment to time when it comes to doing it. Um, and sometimes, especially depending on specific behaviors that you're looking for, it can be very intensive um, you could be watching an animal from the moment you put it—you you put the animal on exhibit until the an, until the animal's taken out of the exhibit—and mm. um, it'd be very fine grained analyses. Um, or you could be—you could also be doing—you could be very interested in just the state of the animal, so basic activity and activity, which could already tell you quite a bit, um, and it's pretty fair. Um, you could do scan samples, which is more like snapshots. So mm. if you kind of like have um, every, you set a camera for every ten minutes, that's what you would record. Um, and sometimes that could be a helpful um, thing for keepers who are also juggling multiple things at a um, in a single day. Yeah. Um, you could you can do something like that, like a basic sort of like quick and dirty way to record stuff. The the key is to keep it as systematic as possible.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's sort of where it ends up falling apart. And that's the, those scan samples, whenever as a keeper that I've been asked to, to, to do these kind of things, it's always been, it's always been that. Cause that seems to be the most approachable as far as time mm-hmm. it's, uh, and it's also, you know, from your perspective, like you probably get a much more like unbiased view, um, you know, because when you're a keeper, like the animals can recognize you, like you're in uniform, like it's this whole, it's this whole thing. Like you get this, this rose colored glasses, uh, sort of, uh, a view of the animals that you're working with. You know, they're always happy to see, it's like your dog, you know, you don't know what your dog is doing Mm -hmm. at home, but like every time you get home, it's like, holy hell you're home. And then, you know, you get that, your dog isn't like that all the time, you know? So it's, uh, it's interesting to get that bias, um, removed
1: it's It's pretty interesting, and it's it's good that you also mentioned bias because um, yeah, we'll tend to anthropomorphize things, We'll tend to relate uh, with things. And at some point, being human, you kind of need that to interpret stuff. Um, it's very difficult to go beyond our own experiences, but the way the way we present ourselves to the animals also affects their behavior. Um, mm. And especially when you work in close contact with them, and when you work with them as as opposed to working on them, which is basically what I'm doing, there's a difference between those two. Uh, when you work with them, you co-construct a specific sort of environment. Um, and so this is this is going um, into human-animal relationships. But um, so if you've ever heard of the um, book called primate visions, it was a pretty controversial book. But the suggestion was, um, humans and primates, they co uh, specifically for primates, they co construct a reality. Um, So if you work closely with them, like you say, you'll, you'll inevitably affect how they behave. Um, And at the same time, they'll inevitably affect how you behave as well. So what you what you look at what you record what you um, what you pay attention to, um, is also affected by the animal and whether or not it's a reliable thing becomes a bit subject for debate. Um, yeah. cause at some point you go into qualitative stuff, um, and, or you go into like, what are the regularities between, between the things that people are saying, is there some sort of like, um, reliability between raters or something, um, mm-hmm. you go into that sort of like fuzzy detail of, yeah. um, things, um, But I agree with you. Um, Somehow you kind of like need to also detach yourself. And even with someone um, like me, for example, I've been watching uh, the orangs at the Toronto Zoo for, um, or since 2021, very consistently. And then um, my first project was with them as well in 2018. So it's been a while and you kind of do feel like some kinship with these orangs. Yeah. Um, But I also had to habituate them for a wee bit um, at the start of... um, my master's thesis um, I did notice that some of the orangs were a bit um, wary of someone being there because people weren't around um, at the beginning Um, so I did have to habituate them to my presence specifically because they would see me and I was the only one there
0: yeah 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 and, and that was actually my next question was going to be you know, talking about, I understand that you've just, you know, completed a lot of research. Well, maybe it's never complete, but it's uh, in a stage where uh, you're, you're making sense of it now. And um, do you want to sort of go over that research and what you were looking at uh, with these, uh, the orangs?
1: Oh, thanks. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the research is basically focused on how the orangs would react when people get re- introduced after the pandemic lockdowns. So it took advantage of the pandemic and the lockdowns to actually have zero visitors at the zoo, Mm. um, which is not very easy. Um, Sometimes you would get one, two, three, four visitors um, at a time, especially in off season. Um, But controlling for not having any visitors um, on consecutive days um, is very difficult to do. And so the pandemic despite all the hardships that it's caused, um, actually gave us that opportunity to understand the relationship between humans and, um, or visitors specifically, and uh, the reaction of the orangs. So um, what it did did there was I looked at stress. And the reason why I looked at stress is because I define animal welfare as the animal's capacity to cope. Um, What that means is whether the animal can control Um, and respond to the changes in the environment um, that the animal is in. Um, And when you look at coping, you automatically look at stress, because stress um, is really about the failure of the animal to cope. Um, So animals, um, and the listeners may have heard of this concept, which is homeostasis, Mm. Um, is a pretty, it's a pretty common term, just the balance, keeping the balance of the body um, and all of that. But it's actually more than just homeostasis. So um, stress actually looks at allostasis, which is um, the changes, there are regular changes in the animal's balance um, and it doesn't stay static, but the animal's capacity to change with those changes um, is stress. Um, So if the animal is not capable of coping with it, then the animal is stressed. Um, And if the animal is stressed, then the animal has poor welfare. Um, But stress, oftentimes, when scientists would look at stress, they would look at a very specific thing, uh, which is cortisol. Um, But cortisol is not very. uh, So it's it's related to other things. It's related to movement. It's related to just positive things. Yeah. um, And excitement. And so there has to be a distinction between what is excitement and what is stress or distress um, and so what I did with that is i looked at two different classes of measures um, one is aversion and the other one is arousal so cortisol um, is a measure of arousal it's a part of the um, stress response in air quotes um, but it is really meant to release the energy that we have in our body to prepare us for f- flight flight. Um, moving away from the situation that is causing stress or imbalance in our allostasis. Um, But then defining how the animal um, finds it requires us to see if the animal is avoiding something. So you have to look at whether or not the animal is avoiding um, people um, and whether or not um, the animal has high arousal. Um, So I observe the orangs. I was looking at orangs specifically, and there is a reason for that. Um, orangs and most primates are pretty popular in zoos. Um, they usually gather uh, visitors because I guess visitors are curious. They're pretty much like us. We are primates, after all, right? Um, but you know, if we think about that, we're making these primates perform these roles, and you have to you you got to ask what is the cost of that to them. Um, and you have to ask that you you have to ask the primates um, themselves. We can't define it for them. So that's what I did. Um, and what I found was, at least at the context of the Toronto Zoo, I did not see any increase in arousal. So for that, I looked at other um, measures of arousal as, as well. Um, I try to describe it, but basically, I look at I looked at self-directed behavior. So. That'd be self scratching. Um, and in particular for orangs, it's it's pretty obvious. Uh, they have subtle ones, but um, think about clawing your belly um, in a very exaggerated way or doing that to your nape um, in a very exaggerated way. So that's how orangs would do it. Um, there are other measures of arousal as well, like uh, agitated movement. So patrolling, um, running around, you'd see recoil. Um, They would slam some of the platforms as well. Um, And also um, displacement towards other individuals. So some of the orangs at the the Toronto Zoo are actually um, housed together or pairs. Um, And so you would expect to see some sort of aggression or agonistic behavior between the two of them. And then um, displacement towards other objects. So are you seeing any sort of like um, tearing of fabric in a really forceful way, such that there's recoil um, or slamming the head against something, things like these. Um, So that is, these are measures of high arousal. And then, of course, looking at the physiological aspect or side of that, um, I also looked at poop. Um, So I looked at the poop of the orangs um, and we are also in the in the process of uh, processing the uh, fecal cortisol but um, there's one other index for that which is uh, whether or not the animal is having um, bad fecal consistency by that I mean diarrhea or constipation things like these um, and it's pretty common um, so, This isn't a common index of stress that's used all the time, but uh, what they found in humans was it's actually only related strongly to chronic stress or um, bad diet. Mm. But of course, the orangs at the Toronto Zoo have a very consistent diet, so you wouldn't expect that to change just because of what they're eating because it's the same thing throughout. Um, But what would change was, was the state of stress or arousal um so i didn't see any changes in that um and i also looked at measures of aversion which is basically how much of the exhibit are they using um are they using a small amount of the exhibit Um, are they using a big amount of the exhibit and it turned out um, that between um, introduction and the lockdowns there wasn't any difference in the amount of space that they were using But what was so interesting with that is they already were using um, a small amount of space from the get go. Mm. So you'd think that, oh, could this just be a ceiling effect? Um, By that, I mean, is it just that they're avoiding everyone um, from the get go that they don't need to avoid anyone anymore? Uh, You know, you'd expect that if that were the case, that they would also be hiding but in fact, what happened was when the visitors got introduced, they just they they hid a bit less. Mm. Um, they spent, I believe about eleven mm. percent less eleven um, percent of the time less hiding oh. um, than they were in lockdown. Um, so it was just it, it was it made me curious as to why they were choosing a specific area. Um, and that area happened to be the back area, uh, but that's also where the keepers were. Um, the keepers would go in and regularly feed them. Uh, Much like what you were saying earlier, um, the keepers actually pretty much strongly affect their behavior. Um, And so I did some follow-up analysis to that and I looked at the correlation between the directed keeper-directed behavior, so the orangs following um, the keepers, the gaze of the orangs following the keepers, to the presence of the keepers being there, how many times a day What is the rate of presence that the keepers are there? And it was a pretty strong correlation. It was pretty tight. Um, So basically what that means is that the more the keepers are there, the more the orangs are likely to direct their attention. But I also looked at their scanning behaviors, looking for other things outside of the exhibit. Um, And usually you'd expect that to go down if they're actually looking for the keepers they're looking for the keepers you'd expect that to go down with an increase of the keeper presence um but they're not so taking both of those into account you know that the orangs aren't doing a general search for the keepers they know where the keepers are coming from Mm. um and um they would pretty much pay attention to the keepers when they're there um at least the data are suggestive of that
0: oh interesting yeah uh I liked what you said at the beginning, um, you know, like what your sort of approach to welfare being this ability for the animals to cope. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking a lot lately is like, um, there, there's, you know, studies that say like, uh, about enrichment, um, and, you know, proper environments, like building this sort of optimistic cognitive bias and stuff in, 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 animals and, um, you know I, I wonder you know how important sort of intentionally trying to build resiliency in the animal like through these different kinds of um different modalities there like how how important do you think do you think that is and do you have any sort of thoughts on this intentionally um you know trying to build resiliency
1: i think i i actually agree with that um i think there is a balance that has to be struck um, but we also have to look at what animal welfare science is um, and where it began um, and the reason for why there's like a difference in the approach. Um, so right now you're you're describing a really positive approach in the practitioners. They want to they want to improve animal welfare. They want to go beyond just um, hitting the bare minimum, whereas animal welfare traditionally started with minimizing suffering.
0: Mm mm-hmm.
1: And it was because of that whole um, uh, book that was published in the UK called Animal Machines. um, And it was criticizing how animals were kept in um, tiny um, battery cages, mainly chickens. Um, And so the whole committee, uh, Bramble Committee, uh, which established the five freedoms um, of animal welfare, um, was tasked to examine and look specifically at suffering. So animal welfare from the get-go has a bias towards measuring all the negatives. So even when you look at coping, for example, we look at stress, we look at, um, I guess, aggression. We we look at uh, damage to health um, or physiological um, problems. We look at those things. where animal welfare science um, is missing right now and where it needs to go is to actually measure the positive side of welfare. And thinking about the wording there, for example, welfare is the uh, capacity of the animal to cope. There's a flip side to that, which is the um, capacity of the animal to thrive. Right. And thriving requires not just giving everything to the animal, um, but also challenging the animal well enough. So that the animal can, you know, actually try to cope with it, and also find that the animal has the uh, capacity for to cope with the challenges mm-hmm. um, with welfare. Because um, yeah, one other thing with animal welfare science is that the approach to it too is very different depending on the scientists that you're speaking to, um, and so you would have scientists who would focus specifically on health, traditional vet people. Um, usually some scientists who would kind of idealize nature and they'd want everything to be very naturalistic. Um, and then some scientists who would look at just the affective states. So is the animal quote unquote happy? Is the animal um, enjoying these things? Is the animal preferring these things? Um, or, you know, there are, there could be negative affective states as well. Um, but a recent, um, a recent, model of welfare kind of unites all of these three into the five domains so again mapping it into the five freedoms of welfare um and it just looks at whether or not the animal is suffering um amongst all of these five domains um and whether or not the animal can actually um change um and cope with the changes right so it kind of brings it it brings it back to coping um but that you only get positive affective states when you quell some of the problems that you have. So, for example, we look at um, hunger. Um, You get a positive affective state, which is one of the domains of uh, five domains of welfare um, if you quench your hunger. Right. So your experience now, um, if you were the animal, uh, your experience of positive stuff So going beyond, um, rests on the balance of the challenge, having some of these experiences that are not necessarily positive, um, but also having the capacity to control that and cope and quench some sort of desire or need or motivation to do something.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause it's just an interesting way of, uh, of thinking about it from, you know, a keeping standpoint, because a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, that we're doing like like uh, training for for medical behaviors and emergency recalls and like, uh, you know, the like some of the challenging enrichment, challenging, uh, you know, foraging opportunities and, and stuff like that. Like, I, I really feel like that is, um, you know, building resiliency in the animal because there's only so many things that you can control. Like there's going to be emergencies. There's going to be, you know, if you have a herd of animals, like one of them is going to get hurt eventually and you're going to have to separate them. There's, there's going to be construction. There's going to be like loud visitors. Like there's going to be all these things and like, you're not going to change any of those. So focusing on what you can do to the animals so they can better cope with those situations that are going to come is, is a really good approach for, you know, not only just welfare right now, but welfare in the long term.
1: Oh, 100%. And I agree with that. And I think um, it's also, it's also where animal welfare, um, or well, where the keeping staff and where uh, the practitioners of animal welfare uh, can actually drive research further, because they're actually doing the on the ground stuff. Mm. Um, That's pretty much away from this sort of like current debate in animal welfare. I think animal welfare is somehow having some sort of an existential crisis because they t- they tend to be um, looking inward and try they they try to define and validate all their measures. Um, and sometimes when you're um when you're a practitioner and when you don't necessarily do the research side of things, um, it can be very confusing. And you just go like, I just don't know how to tell whether or not my animal's okay anymore. But you know. Building resilience somehow. At least you can tell um, that the animal is responding well to what sort of like resilience you're trying to build. um Yeah.
0: Yeah, because bridging that gap between you know the actual like welfare science and then the keepers on the ground is is so important because you know without uh, one another you know like it's you're significantly sort of pinioned on either side if you. Are you know approaching from the 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 welfare science and you're looking at your ethograms and and you have no keeper buy-in and you're like what's going on here and what's going on here and like no one's working with you and then vice versa if like you're not sharing these this uh, this data with keepers in a in a way that actually benefits them on the day to day then it's you know what are we what are we doing this for you know what I mean so it's yeah it's an important <laughs> gap to sort of to sort of bridge.
1: It's, it's a really interesting thing. And I do think that um, the keepers do know their animals really well. Well, Um, you can get biases, sure. Yeah. Um, But they are pretty much like the parents of their animals, you know, Um, and researchers, we can kind of be like the doctors, we could be um, the teachers, um, so to speak, but they are the parents and they spend quite a a lengthy amount of time um, with the animals. So they can tell you indicators of uh, poor welfare, good welfare, um, and you know what research needs to do is to test that um, yeah. and see if that 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 amounts to something that correlates to something because um, yeah, it's 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 an interaction and inter an interplay between the two of these, um, but at the same time, I do think that uh, you know bridging that sort of gap, I think. Um, The keeping staff can actually be the research themselves or the researchers themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, You are pretty much on the ground uh, practicing um, things, but you can make note of stuff Um, and you can also go beyond um, animal welfare itself. Because like I say, animal welfare can be pretty um, intensive and sometimes it could just be like closed on focusing about just the measures. But um, for me, for example, coming from psychology and in particular, comparative cognition, there are other things about animal, the animal's lives um, and the animal's experiences that actually affect their welfare. Um, and we need to also go beyond um, the, we need to go beyond the traditional animal welfare research and think about things about um, how can the animal actually process the things that we're giving them. So, you know, we talk about, okay, we'll, we'll give them enrichment. Um, but Does the animal have the cognitive capacity to even understand what this is? Um, You know, oftentimes we give music, does the animal understand what music is? Mm. Um, Or, in my case, for example, like, uh, is the animal more likely to um, respond to me as a keeper? Because that's basically like an interesting thing I found in um, uh, my research too was, um, you know, on the visitor side of things, it's neutral, it's pretty neutral, but on the keeper side of things, there's a positive touch to it. And you just wonder how much can we kind of exploit that and refine that um, and make it a bit more challenging for the animals. Um, So, you know, and that's just because we tested that on orangs. but do we know if that's the same for other species? Mm. Um, We don't necessarily know. Can they even tell the difference between two different keepers? right mm.
0: yeah because because even when you know and and i'm sure every keeper listening has done this but like if you go visit the zoo you work at without your uniform on and you walk by like your supposed best friend animal and they don't even acknowledge your presence you know they mm-hmm. you're they don't even know that you and you like what what re- a part of your relationship like extends past the uniform and past the the those sort of like cues like how much yeah can they can they distinguish you you know
1: a hundred percent. So, yeah. And so, but that's also the thing that puts the keepers in a really good position. Yeah, It puts them up at a position where we can actually do some of this research. We just need to be a bit more systematic with like noting stuff, mm-hmm. um, but we can check and we can always continuously check. Um, but I do say like, in terms of bridging that gap, They can be the researchers themselves they can be the researchers themselves
0: yeah and and especially from the keeper standpoint and i understand like you know time and and all these things are are you know precious but uh collect as much data on your animals as you can as early as you can because we you know too often in the zoo industry wait for a problem with a specific animal Mm -hmm. to set those cameras up to start doing these ethograms to start getting people to watch these animals like we wait for these problems and and every time i've been involved in any sort of situation like that like i've just been like god damn it i wish we had a baseline of three months before this problem happened because it might have just been you might find out the the um you know polar bear that has been pacing uh for the majority of the day started to do that at 2 a.m for an hour three months ago and it could have been way easier to solve it when they were just doing it at 2 a.m as opposed to 2 p.m for seven hours you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. yeah collecting that that data as early as possible is is and as much as possible i i you know there's there's a limit to that but thinking about that beforehand Mm -hmm. and being proactive is just is just huge
1: do i'd say do what you can with what you have but then just keep it regular and keep it um simple when it comes to data collection at least. yeah um, but also be curious because i think there's on the positive side of things um you never know what you would discover as well uh sometimes yeah when we give animals specific enrichment and they tend to prefer it we just kind of like stop with like that sort of choice that oh it's it's the choice of the animal but um you know you might want to kind of like challenge them a wee bit and see like, up to what point do they actually prefer this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's good to also be be changing that because as a keeper, um, you do have that sort of agency to change things around the animals. Um, Well, I think like bridging that sort of gap, like, if you just become a bit more systematic with, um, like manipulating things around their environment, Mm. um, and then planning that sort of um, thing ahead, and then maybe you know like you can get someone to collect the data for you or you could just like do something very cursory yeah um, and it it'd help
0: yeah absolutely and 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 you know speaking from experience do not sit on that data like it share it with other zoos other facilities other mm-hmm. people like share it with as many people as possible and 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 don't just sit on it and let it just go into a filing ca- a dusty filing cabinet that no mm-hmm. one ever opens you know like yeah, because you know, there's so many. It, this has to be so collaborative, and 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 there's the more you can collect, and and the more you can mm-hmm. share it, like you can be solving people's problems and increasing welfare of animals that you don't even work with. So, um, yep, yeah, it's it's super important. So, well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about your, um, you know, all this orangutan uh, observation was. Have you, did you see anything? Cause I, you just talked about curiosity and, and, and all that. And, and I know you're an observant person and, and, and curious about these things. Like, did you see anything that, you know, wasn't necessarily related to your research, but like really struck you as like, oh, this is, you know, a very interesting sort of thread that you'd really like to pull maybe later in a, in a more research uh, later down the road. Like, is there anything that stood out to you as, as, uh, interesting?
1: Well, I think the timing of when they look for keepers and when they pay a lot more attention to when the keepers are around um, is a pretty interesting thing. And it's not 100% related to my work, but it could be be a sign of, um, you know, boredom. And it could be a good sort of like, um, uh, a good sort of um, measure to look at. Um, And I'm not saying that the animals are specifically bored, but at some point you get to... uh, A point in the day where uh, the animals have had all the enrichment Mm. um, and the animals are just waiting to uh, come in and so you do wonder like uh, what is the relationship between that sort of length of time that they're in there and the anticipation that they have to go in Um, and of Mm. course like you know boredom is a very anthropomorphic thing Um, it's a very human experience um, but there are there are markers to that um, and there are ways that we can tell that. And so, um, you know, maybe we can look into that. Um, I think, I think, you know, when we look at coping, for example, we look at things that change in their environment, but what about the things that don't change and that stay the same? How yeah. do they react to those things? And um, it made me ask uh, that sort of question.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and yeah, it's, it's, I feel like, especially like this, this, uh, you know, our, our generation and, and, and society as a whole right now, like we're, we put, we're sort of at, like at war with boredom and we don't realize Mm -hmm. that like, you know, before cell phones and, and, and media everywhere being in your pocket, like it was just like, okay to just be bored, you know, like you could just be in a lineup at uh you know a service ontario or a dmv for all the americans listening like and and just be bored like you just have to stare at the person in front of you's head for for an hour maybe and like that's not a p- experience that we have unless like you went to get your license renewed and your phone happened to die like on the way like being bored and and not engaging with anything is is that's that's a that's a thing that like you know Mm-hmm. is is okay maybe for for welfare and and yeah it would be interesting to uh, sort of you know study that lag time and and how do we how do we like make the their day-to-day like more adaptable for them like well, you know mm-hmm. how how do they cuz if that's you know shown to be a negative sort of space in their day like how do we change that and how do we mitigate those sort of feelings in 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 them you know
1: yes um i agree with that and it it presents a potential, you know, uh, because we think of boredom as a negative thing right now in society. And like you did, you do mention um, in the past, it's not necessarily the thing, um, and it's something that people can enjoy. Um, but also from a comparative standpoint, um, do the animals even care about it? Yeah, do the animals even feel it? But um, did we did we care
0: loss? about it before phones? You know, <laughs> like we're so like cognizant of our of our um, boredom now. That it's like, d- did we care about it before? Like, did people, you know, 80, 90 years ago, like, care about being bored, you know? Like, obviously, there's an extent. Mm-hmm. Like, you're stuck in your room all day not doing anything. But, like, did people care, like, taking a flight uh, mm-hmm. to a 10-hour flight and not having any entertainment? <laughs> like, you know, what uh, What was that like? Did we care about and that? Yeah.
1: I think this is also where the the difference between the, I guess, measurements of animal welfare and differences in focus... Um, of animal welfare would come in because um, people from the affective states would just be like, oh, that's a negative affective state. Um, we should eliminate that. Yeah. Uh, but people from the natural, um, I guess naturalistic um, type of animal welfare would be saying something very similar to that in that they'd say, uh, well, you know, the animals aren't necessarily always bored in the wild. Or do we know? Um, but, um, you know, they'd say, well, it's a sign that the animal needs to move forward to a different resource. Say you're foraging and it's not being very productive anymore. Um, Some would say that it's, um, it's a sign that the animal is trying to cope. Um, It's to say it's, it's a sign that the animal is trying to cope with the lack of productivity of a certain thing. Um, But then again, like from a health standpoint, is that a, bad thing like did it affect the health of the animal so Mm. again that would depend on like where where your bias is as a researcher in terms of like your focus
0: yeah yeah no it's interesting and uh you know one of the things i was thinking of as far as like keepers becoming more involved in you know, this animal welfare research is like building that like scientific literacy because especially like if you don't come from like a university background, uh, you didn't spend a lot of time staring at, um, you know, research paper after research paper, like it can be intimidating, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for, and I'm sure that you pick up stuff right now and you're like, what the hell does that word mean? Like, I've never seen that before in my life, you know? So how, how do you recommend like people build that sort of literacy when it comes to, you know, scientific research and and particularly like welfare sort of research?
1: I think, uh, Personally, I do feel that sometimes, and it does happen and it will happen. Um, It's very inevitable uh, for you to feel overwhelmed, especially with the new jargon. Um, I think the precursory stuff, definitely you look at the abstract and then you look at the conclusion. Uh, Because one of the things that's preventing people from accessing science is the maths because of the anxiety for it. Uh, People look at the statistics and they just be like, This is too much. What does this mean? Um, And it it can be pretty complicated with welfare too, because of like the lack of controls that we you have, especially for zoos, for example. You'd have to use really complicated statistics for it. Uh, But do look at the uh, discussion, because there is it's very formulaic. It's very formulaic. You just look at um, the first line, and they'd say, "Well, this is what we tested." Um, this is what we found this these are the implications and once you realize that format it's all it's all the same yeah um but um i also think that go go beyond like i've said go beyond um, animal welfare um research and go go for like imperative cognition stuff um stuff in learning for example which i think keepers are pretty well acquainted with they do know um uh how to train their animals they do know contingencies and like variable and fix and ratio um, scale Um, but some of these things can actually open up the doors to what things you want to test with your animals Mm -hmm. um, as well Um, and um, yeah if you are very interested in the basics of animal welfare the fundamentals of it um, I think understanding the fundamentals is the most important thing before going to like the really complex stuff, um, I think research by Professor Marion Dawkins um, and uh, Donald Broom um, would be very important uh, people um, to look into. And I think those um, those people uh, have research gates, and so sometimes one of the barriers is looking at a paper and then finding a paywall. But um, yeah. actually send them an email or look at their university websites because they have it for free Um, and they or they can they can give it to you for free because they have ownership to it. Mm. Um, do send them an email um, don't hesitate um, and they'll be very happy to share their research with you Um, in terms of bridging um, comparative cognition so how animals think and um uh welfare, for example. Uh, Look at the research being done by uh, my supervisor, uh, Dr. Suzanne MacDonald. She does have a website, and she's looked at things like choice um, and how orangs, in in particular, prefer it, things like um, um, do orangs understand music, which is uh, the research of her and um, one of um, my seniors, um, a PhD at the time. so there are things like that. Um, and yeah, um, I think that's pretty much it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, good advice. I, I will link, uh, you know, I'll put links in the show notes to everybody that you mentioned and everything that you've mentioned so far. Um, and I'll, I'll shameless plug for uh, our welfare Wednesday email. Uh, if you do want these sort of scientific uh, studies uh, around animal welfare broken down for you in a more digestible email format, uh, we do do that. So uh, you know, check out our website. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Uh, go on our social media. it's, it's also there. So uh, if you would like, our, our every single Wednesday, you get one of these in your inbox. So um, had to take the opportunity for the shameless plug, but in the, in the email, I, you know, I break down the introduction to sort of set things up and what you, what you said at the beginning around it actually not being that hard to do some of this research yourself, uh, read the, the, um, methods section. I always mm-hmm. find the methods so interesting because a lot of the time, like, even though there's, you know, a lot of these studies are studying something that is hard to Imagine approaching as a keeper like often the the sort of methods and this the study design can be very approachable as far as like you as a keeper replicating these circumstances and 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 these sort of uh, conditions for you know, all sorts of different animals. So it's it's very interesting to uh, uh, Read those those methods sections as as well. So definitely don't uh, don't neglect that because it'll just tell you exactly what the researchers did to, to get mm-hmm. their results so um yeah check that out for sure
1: i think the methods section um are really good um and it depends on the person sometimes they can be like easily overwhelmed with the method section yeah but i think maybe um,
0: skip the stats but you know go mm -hmm. to the
1: (laughs) go to go to the procedures i agree with you on that go to the procedures go to the sampling um style um and see how they did it because it's it's true um it's actually pretty simple and you'll find like i say for um uh the discussion section of the uh, paper, it's also pretty formulaic. They will tell you what type of method, uh, what type of sampling they use. They will tell you what type of stats they use and they'll tell you um, when they observe the animal and it's uh, it's simple from there.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, on that note, do you have any sort of Like, uh, do you have like a paper or anything or like some recent research that you that you've uh, read into recently that you'd like to sort of highlight for people as far as something that blew your mind or something around that?
1: Okay, this is pretty cool, but pretty wacky as well. Um, So in search of positive um, welfare measures, I was looking at this paper that looked at the facial temperatures, the facial profile, um, and they were basically looking at... uh, the changes in temperature in the upper lip of primates. Um, so what they were saying was before feeding, um, that should change. And they did find that there was a small change, less than like a degree um, of, I guess, degree Celsius of change in the upper lip. And they were saying that, oh, it's actually a positive, um, uh, a positive measure of welfare. It's a good measure. It's a measure that says that, oh, the animals are happy. Um, it's hard to say that with such a small, effect size of less than a degree, of course. Um, or at least it's hard to practically practically apply that. But um, what was interesting was, for one of the subjects, they had to tickle a gorilla. <laughs> so they, they literally had to like, poke the gorilla, just imagine a gigantic gorilla, oh, and, like yeah. you're trying to poke it with your tiny wee fingers. <laughs> um, but I think it, op- I like that sort of research, because they really did their best and they tried to operationalize what positive affect is. Um, But you do wonder, like, is tickling a positive thing? Um, And it opens up the space to um, a deeper conversation about how anthropocentric our definitions are of positive things or animals. You know, we might think that it's a good thing, but is it necessarily the same? And um, I just, I like that. I like the research. Um, it was just pretty cool.
0: Well, and you're and you're probably jealous that some researchers got to tickle gorillas. For I am, <laughs> but not
1: so much um, I don't think Sadiqi, uh, the one of the uh, males at the Toronto Zoo, would take um, into yeah would, would take think, that lightly. You know, yeah, subject <laughs> would
0: be very important in that study. So, uh, you know, as somebody that surveys a lot of the literature and is sort of in it right now, like, where do you see the biggest uh advancements in in animal welfare being in the next sort of five to ten years in your opinion
1: like i say i could see the direction going towards what are the positive wel- uh, welfare measures mm. um, because there is a need for that and we can't just we can't just go with the bare bones we can't just like say okay we've given them and we've given them the bare minimum um, but we have to go beyond that because like I say, we are asking so much for of these animals. Um, we're asking so much of them, why don't we give them something something positive? And so there is a direction towards positive uh welfare measures, and they're still yet to find stuff. Um so there's a lot of things to discover, and it's a very it's a very young science. Um so you know, once we go over the sort of like Existential crisis that we're having in um, animal welfare, of validating every single measure, um, we it it'll be um it'll be a big thing um, and we'll see and I feel like that's definitely where um, the keepers can like help because um, you know they're in charge of playing with the animals um, you know as much as also caring for the animals very mm-hmm. deeply. Um, giving the challenge and giving giving the animals something good something for them to enjoy is a big part of their job yeah um and so you know how to systematize that and how to um collect the data for that is like a big thing and once we crack that sort of like puzzle i guess like the whole industry of providing care for animals and ensuring positive animal welfare um can move forward
0: yeah no that's yeah that's very interesting so one of the things I I usually ask uh, my I've been asking my guests for uh, for a minute now, uh, if there was a poster you could put up in every animal care facility, you know in the world, you know what would it say and and why would it say that?
1: Oh, that's that's a really good question. Um, so I think I'd say ask the animal. Um, and it's um the reason I say that is not because I want people to have a a conversation with the animal but more about focus on what the animal is doing um, and focus on these measures Um, oftentimes we tend to assume negative stuff but at the same time assume positive stuff um, for them we assume that we know what is best for them um, but we have to ask but also don't stop at just asking test as well Um, test and test and test and test maybe ask and test Um, ask Test the animal,
0: yeah. No, that's yeah, that's interesting. And sorry, I feel like my dog is barking in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, adorable.
1: Every uh, yeah,
0: animal people watch this podcast, so you know, it's it's okay, but uh, yeah, no, that's that's a that's a good poster. Do you have any sort of final uh, plugs or takeaways or any sort of uh, anything else that you'd like to impart onto, uh, onto the audience? You've already said so many things that i'm going to be thinking about (laughs) as i'm trying to fall asleep tonight so
1: um i don't know if i have uh, so much to plug um i'm a humble researcher and i'm just like getting through my career but um uh i do think that um yeah if you're interested in more comparative cognition stuff um if you're interested to know how your animals are thinking uh check out the uh journal coming out, um, coming from the Comparative Cognition Society. Um, so it's learning and behavior and also comparative cognition reviews. Um, like I mentioned, um, uh, some stuff coming from my supervisor, Dr. Suzanne McDonald, um, be on the lookout, uh, for, um, her research, um, as well. Um, and yeah, I think that's about it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I will, uh, again, I'll link all that stuff in the, in the show notes for people to check out. Um, and, uh, Ezekiel is a fantastic chat. I think we covered a lot of ground, but I think there's you know more ground to cover in the future. So you'll have to uh, you know, come back on again sometime. Amazing!
1: Oh, uh, thanks so much.
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was great. And uh, to everyone listening, uh, until next time, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.